Welcome to Straight Thinking. On today's special episode, we're taking a look back at one of our favorite discussions. Now tune in with philosopher Ken Samples, Joe Aguirre, and Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, learning apologetics from church history. Obviously, there's a ton of ground to cover on such a topic, uh, but Ken, you're going to highlight a few thinkers and how their insights can help us today. Yes, that's exactly right, Joe. I'd, I'd like to, uh, it's not often I think you look at church history specifically from the vantage point of apologetic and apologetic issues, but I'd like to do that. And so in the next two programs, I plan to kind of look at early church history, maybe take us up to the Middle Ages, and then uh, hopefully in the future we'll come back to this topic and study a bit more. Sounds good. Ken, for people who might be new to uh, your work or the apologetics arena, uh, some might say, I thought we're kind of in the golden age of apologetics. Didn't the church, uh, you know, emerge right from the get-go without any problems? And we had some hiccups maybe around the time of the Reformation and so on, or or what? What, what is the way to look at the, the early part of our history? Yeah, well, uh, church history is complicated. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, it's a mess. <laughs> I remember when I recommended to Dave to read um, uh, Bruce, Shelley. Bruce Shelley's book. Uh, I think the title is Church History in Plain Language or something yes. like that. Yes. A very readable. And, and I'm glad we brought that up because that's a that's a very good book, Joe, for somebody who is new to these topics. Mm -hmm. But I remember recommending it to Dave and he read it. And I said, well, what do you think? He said, it's a it's a mess. <laughs> and, you know, there's a there's a lot of truth in that. Um, church history is complicated. It, it is difficult, but it but it's also um, very instructive to us. And I personally think that nothing's happening today that in some ways hasn't happened before. There, you know, we may have our modern technologies and things that are a little different, but in terms of human beings and the challenges they have and the issues that are related, uh, I think there's a lot to learn. And so I'd like to show how these eras kind of work together and, and Again, one of the reasons I do this is there are a lot of Christians living today who think almost exclusively of their faith in very personal terms. Now, nothing wrong with that. Everybody has to know the Lord for themselves. You know, you're, you, you can't have your parents' faith. You can't have the faith of somebody else. You have to know the Lord. You have to have a relationship with him in a, in a saving relationship. But what I like to add is that Christianity is also a historic movement that is a worldwide movement. And I think it's important to kind of see how this church unfolded, uh, strengths, weaknesses, good, bad, and all, everything in between. All right. Okay, where do we need to start then? There's a well, long history. <laughs> I think the place to start is to start with Jesus. And, all right. Uh, I want to say some things about the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, first thing I want to say is I think he is clearly, and I don't think he really has any competitors, the most consequential life ever lived. 
Now, there are people, by the way, as soon as I say that, there are people who think that Muhammad was more influential. I happen to disagree with that. I do agree that Muhammad was an extraordinarily influential person. Remember, he's born in the Arabian desert in the Middle Ages. Um, he is an orphan. He can't read or write. Within 60 years, he becomes the leader of the entire Arabian world. And of course, today, there's almost 2 billion Muslims in the world. So whatever you think about Muhammad, even if you think he's a false prophet and Islam is a false religion, there's no doubt Muhammad had deep influence. But I think even Muhammad or Confucius or the Buddha or Socrates or any of the political leaders as well, I don't think any of them compare to the consequential life that Jesus lived. And I want to begin and talk a little bit about his life period. Now, uh, Jesus wasn't born in AD 1. I mean, we get that Latin expression, anio domini. It means in the year of the Lord. But notice how influential Jesus is. Everything happens either before him or after him. I mean, think about that. Uh, we, we divide history based upon what happened before he came and what happened after he came. I mean, to me, that's just an amazing that any individual would have that kind of influence, but literally he does. Now, Jesus wasn't born in AD 1. I mean, the Gregorian calendar, when you go back to the ancient world, time, you know, trying to track all this time, uh, there are, uh, you know, years and days that may miss the mark, but most scholars think that Jesus was born somewhere around 6 to 4 BC, and that he died either in 30 AD or in 33 AD. Now, again, a, a lot of people uh, get kind of concerned about that. You know, I should say some skeptics say, well, you don't even know exactly what year he was born, or you, you dispute about the, the year that he died. Uh, but I, I want to I add a little something here in terms of uh, a, a scholarly comment that is made um, uh, about Buddha. Um, you know, when I studied the other religions and wrote the book God Among Sages, what I discovered is that uh, in Hinduism, uh, Krishna is the central figure. But there are Krishna scholars who say, we don't know whether he was a real historical figure. Maybe he was, or maybe the description of him comes from several different people that's kind of been blended together. Um, and yet they even say, well, even if he didn't exist, mythology is superior to history anyway. Hmm. Well, then you go to the Buddha. Um, you know, his, his specific, uh, his traditional dates are 563 to 483 BC or BC year before Christ or before the common era as it's referenced often today. So it's not overtly Christian, but uh, those traditional dates of 563 to 483 uh, in reality, Buddha scholars, because you have Buddha studies and Krishna studies, just like you have Jesus studies, uh, Buddhist scholars don't know what century he was born in. Uh, the traditional dates would put him in the 6th century, 
but he might have been born a century earlier or a century later. Uh, and in terms of the Buddha's writings or our information about him, the bi early biographies or uh, some of his teachings that would have come from his disciples, because Buddha had disciples like Jesus did, and uh, they memorized Buddha's teaching just like the apostles memorized Jesus's teaching. But the written reports don't come until hundreds of years later. So that kind of gives you a perspective. Now, um, Jesus is likely born in 6 to 4 BC, dies either in 30 or 33 AD. Um, and, and of course, uh, what, we, what we know about Jesus is that he is this indeed extraordinary person. He's not only a great teacher on the level with Socrates, on the level with Siddhartha, if you will, uh, Mortimer Adler says that the three great teachers of all time were, were Jesus, Socrates, and maybe Confucius or the Buddha. But Jesus is even more than that. He's a miracle worker. Um, you know, he, he heals people. Uh, in fact, when you read the Gospels, uh, I was amazed. The last, the last time I, uh, when I wrote God Among Sages, I wanted to go back and just read the Gospels in a fresh way so that I could write about the life of Christ. And I was just struck by how many miracles are attributed to him. And of course, uh, we can sum all that up with his birth, which is what we celebrate uh, during the Advent season at Christmas time. His, his extraordinary life, his teaching, his miracles, and then ultimately uh, his death. Uh, he has the most famous death of anybody in history, crucified under the authority of Pontius Pilate. Um, and by the way, they have found uh, the, the Pilate stone uh, in um, the Middle East there in, in Israel. Uh, it is a stone with the written uh, name Pontius Pilate, because there have been people who said, well, maybe Pilate was mythical. Uh, well, uh, that stone pretty much puts that to rest. And then, of course, uh, Jesus's, Jesus's resurrection. And I think in terms of kind of, you know, uh, apologetic issues, um, you know, I, I think about uh, Christmas and Advent that we've, we've just celebrated a month or so ago. Well, I mean, th think about that for a moment. Uh, I think the two biggest challenges that sophisticated atheists bring up these days are really two things, if I could narrow it to two things, and I think I can. One would be the hiddenness of God, that God appears to be hidden. He doesn't appear to be, to engage people. He doesn't seem to be there so that people can encounter him and know him, called the hiddenness argument. And then the traditional problem of evil. You know, there's, there's uh, either evil is inconsistent with God being all powerful and all loving, or there's just too much evil or too much evil that doesn't have any kind of meaning. But, but think about the birth of Christ in light of those two objections. I think it's pretty hard to argue that God is hidden 
if God, if the God man, if Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took a human nature and became man, if Jesus was born into the world, I think it's hard to argue that God has not is somehow hidden. He has come into time and space. Now, of course, there are debates about, and and there always have been, uh, about you know his humanity and his deity. It's interesting to me that in the ancient world. They didn't dispute so much his deity. It was his humanity that was disputed. Today, no, we accept him as human. It's his deity. But if Jesus is indeed the God-man, um, it's hard to argue that God's somehow hidden if he has appeared into human history. And then, of course, if Jesus had a human nature in which he suffered with us as a human being and suffered for us on the cross, then Christianity presents to us a God with wounds, a God who knows what it's like to suffer, and a God who can address the suffering of humanity. And so we can kind of look at these great events of Jesus's life in terms of apologetic issues. Now, why, why would we conclude that he was somehow God? Why a single person with both a divine and human nature well, in terms of his humanity, it's pretty clear he was born, he had a mother, he had family members. Uh, we see his humanity in, in terms of him getting tired. We see him uh, have human limitations. But we see his deity in other ways, uh, not only the claims that he makes. Let, let me just mention one claim. There are many. Um, when Jesus has his major dispute with the religious leaders of the time in John chapter 8, the religious leaders really become exacerbated with Jesus, and they say, who are you? And he re Jesus reaches into the Old Testament, he takes the most sacred name of God, and he applies it to himself. He calls himself the great I am. Uh, the book of Isaiah 42 to 48 that's God's favorite term for himself. Um, and so he makes that claim, but we can also see it in other aspects. Uh, maybe, maybe more uh, jarring is his idea that he can forgive people's sins. And of course, you know, when he says that in the Gospel of Mark, a Jewish man rises and says, well, who can forgive sin but God alone? Well, that, that's the question, isn't it? And then that he can answer prayer, that, that he can judge humanity, that he can raise the dead. I mean, there are only certain things that God can do. Well, Jesus claims to do the things that God can do. Therefore, Jesus is Yahweh. And so those kind of apologetic issues uh, arise uh, in, in this kind of uh, context. And so er, the early church had, uh, you know, one more point, and then I'll pause. And I'm happy, Joe and Dave, to hear your comments or your, your questions. One more point here. Some people have made the claim, uh, very late in church history, much more closer to our times, some people have said, well, wait a second here. You know, uh, Christianity is made up of Gentiles. Gentiles have always, in their pagan roots, have always believed in gods and have invented gods. Maybe Jesus was just a man. Maybe he was a great teacher, a martyr. 
but he never claimed to be God. And somehow these Gentile Christians, they, uh, they divinized him. They invented his deity, you know, maybe, maybe in the Council of Chalcedon in 451. So maybe it took hundreds of years and this uh, human Jesus somehow became the divine human Jesus. Well, I think there's a lot of things we can say, but I, I think there, there is a real powerful uh, way of undercutting that argument. And, and it's this, that the Christians had, they sang hymns and they recited creeds even before there was a New Testament. By the way, there are creeds even in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, right? Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, called the Shema, from the word hear, something you do with your ears, right? But you also do it with your heart. You hear and discern God. Well, uh, Peter and Paul took some of these hymns and creeds and wove them into their writings, and there's a handful of creeds. Maybe the earliest creed is just simply Jesus is Lord. Uh, to call Jesus is Lord in that context is to call him Yahweh. But these creeds in the hymn in Philippians 2 would qualify. Uh, creedal statements in, in Colossians in 1 Corinthians 15. What's interesting here is these creeds are actually older than the books that contain them. That is, they were recited before the New Testament was written. And the point is, they have a very high Christology. They call Jesus God. So it wasn't two or three hundred years later that they invented the deity. Uh, this high Christology was right from the get-go. Let me pause there. I think that's a good place to pause, and we, we can talk a little bit more about uh, the, the biblical New Testament writings, but I want to see if you have a comment or a question. The, um, the thing that I'm confronted with from people, the unbelievers, is this very subject that you're addressing here, which is the reliability of the New Testament. Can you really, uh, you know, they, they will dismiss the New Testament writings and the claims of the writings as being just a product of some later century and, uh, and, and they, of course, have, uh, quote, scholars that will support this view. Um, one that comes to mind is this uh, uh, Bart um, Ehrman, who's apparently a quite a, a accomplished New Testament scholar, but has become an unbeliever, basically, and, and writes all kinds of materials that my atheist friends are quick to quote. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to say a bit more that I think will address, Dave, the, the issue you've raised in particular. But I, but I want to say this. Um, there's a very common practice for skeptical people to quote the liberals. Um, I was talking with the Jehovah's Witness not too long ago, and Jehovah's Witnesses would never quote a Catholic scholar they, they don't want anything to do with the Catholic Church. They think the Catholic Church is the, the horror of Babylon. But I raised a Trinitarian point, and the Jehovah's Witness quoted a liberal Catholic scholar. 
And I thought, why are you quoting a Catholic scholar? Is it only when he agrees with you that you're willing to kind of quote them? But that, that is a common issue. And it's an unfortunate issue because, uh, you know, sometimes the comments that are made by uh, lapsed Christians, and Bart Ehrman, by the way, is a very fine New Testament scholar, very qualified, uh, in fact, has defended the historicity of Jesus. There are skeptical people who said he never existed, and Bart Ehrman denies that. He says, oh no, Jesus existed. So he doesn't always come down on the side of the scholars, but I have uh, read or have been told that Bart Ehrman had a crisis of faith that dealt with the question of the problem of evil. And he began rethinking um, all of the things that he had uh, that he had previously studied. But I want to say a little bit more about that reliability in a moment. Uh, Joe, you want to jump in? Yeah, uh, the question I have concerns the hiddenness argument that you brought up earlier. And since we're talking about Jesus, in fact, uh, you've given possible dates for his uh, birth and death. Uh, someone might say, and I know this is not new for you, but it could be new for our listeners. Someone might say, uh, why not reveal himself at a time when it would be far more successful, such as the digital age? Why couldn't God have his son be born in 1990, for example, if he wanted everybody to know that he's here? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I mean, there have been, I, I remember there were some scientists who said, you know, what is any, why doesn't he write Jesus is Lord in the heavens, uh, you know, or, or, or something of that nature? Um, I, I'm, I'm actually going to, I'm going to actually critique that, Joe, and say, I actually think the time in which Jesus did reveal himself was an extraordinary time. I mean, I mean, think about it. Um, he comes at a time where the Roman Empire dominates the world, and there is the Pax Romana. Uh, the message is able to spread forth because there are no, there's no wars happening. I mean, think about going to Syria or Afghanistan and trying to spread the Christian message in light of, uh, you know, constant uh, battles and fighting. Uh, moreover, uh, it was a period where the, the Greek language, Koine Greek, um, the New Testament was written in the language of trade. It, it, it presented a great opportunity for the gospel to, to go forth. Uh, in my book, Christianity Cross-Examined, I look at 12 different things that I think God used in terms of providence to allow the message of the Son of God to be, to be brought forth. I think you can make quite a convincing case that it was indeed in the fullness of time, as Paul says, that God revealed his son. Good. Well, let me, let me talk a little bit more about uh, the biblical message. Uh, obviously, you have a couple things I think we want to talk a little bit about. I think we want to talk about the Gospels. I think we want to talk about other parts of the New Testament, particularly the epistles or the letters. It's interesting that in the New Testament, uh, 21 of the New Testament books are letters. 
so 21 of 27 books end up being letters, and I want to say a bit more about that. But what about the Gospels? Now, now here's something that often does come up. Um, skeptical people sometimes bring up the issue that the Gospels were originally anonymous. Uh, there's no name connected to the, the Gospels. Unlike Paul, where Paul, you know, I, Paul, wrote this, etc. Well, uh, that's where church history, I think, really, you know, comes into play. Um, in a little while, I want to talk about the Apostolic Fathers, but you have Papias of Hariopolis, whose dates are 60 to 130. He mentions the gospel authors. So does Irenaeus, who is a church father in the second century, and they tell us that these gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and, and, and so here is a point I think is very interesting. You know, part of the debate that happens within Christendom is the debate about the authority of the Bible as opposed to the authority of the church or church tradition. Um, I certainly, as a Protestant, affirm that Scripture is the supreme authority. I, I don't think Scripture has any peer, uh, not tradition, not human reason. Uh, it is the final court of appeals. But I think it's a mistake on the part of Protestants to devalue tradition, because so many apologetic details are tied to church tradition and knowing, uh, you know, uh, church history. But let me talk a little bit about, you know, the, the apostolic era. You, you first of all have the oral tradition stage. Uh, this, this runs from, let's say, 30 AD to about 68 AD. And the oral tradition stage is the apostles are preaching, they're teaching. Uh, you know, they're not sitting down writing books, they're evangelizing, they're getting the message out. And that would be the period of oral tradition. It comes to an end uh, in the mid-60s because that's the anticipated time in which Peter and Paul died as martyrs in the Neronian persecution. So you've got them, you've got them preaching and teaching about the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, we could then move to what I would call the written letters stage. That's about 49 to 69. And that would be all of the epistles of the New Testament. Again, 21 of the 27 letters. Uh, one scholar estimated that 35% of the New Testament is made up of uh, epistles or, or even specifically Paul's letters. So you have Galatians, you have the Corinthian epistles, uh, you have the book of Romans. So this would, this would take us uh, further, a little bit further than the traditional stage or the oral tradition stage. And then you have what I would call the written gospel stage. And that's about 55 to 75. And uh, uh, again, probably, uh, probably Mark and Matthew may have been written two of the earliest ones, most people think Mark was the first one written. Um, and maybe the reason Matthew and Luke give a lot of deference to Mark is because we discover in the Apostolic Fathers that Mark really kind of took Peter's uh, 
you know, talking points and crafted out a, a gospel. And so it reflects the authority of Peter. Um, and, and so you have, again, you have these kind of details coming out of, of church history. But Dave, when you relate to that, I mean, if you've got an oral tradition from 30 to 68, then written letters from 40 to 69, then the gospels from 55 to 75. And, and if you want to push maybe John a little later than that, uh, I don't think it does much damage. But what we see is that these writings uh, appear very soon after the events that they report and describe. And if there were contradictory methods, if there were myths and legends that were growing up, the apostles were alive and were able to, you know, shoot that stuff down. Uh, so again, if you compare this to Buddhism, where you have hundreds of years later, before you have any written documents, it seems to me Christians are in a, in a very good position to, you know, to make some of those, uh, to make a claim that Christianity is authentic and trustworthy and, and reliable. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd, I'd like to leave that now and introduce what we call the Apostolic Fathers. Now, the Apostolic Fathers dates, I'm, I'm going to give it a rough date from about 50 to 150 AD. Uh, so these are, these are some of the earliest church fathers. Um, and we call them apostolic fathers because they knew they interacted or were influenced by the original 12 apostles. Now, three of these individuals are often spoken about in church history, and they come very early. Clement of Rome would be one. His date's 35 to 99. Ignatius of Antioch, 35 to 110. Polycarp of Smyrna, 69 to 155. And then you have uh, a probably less well-known, but very significant, Papias of Heriopolis, 60 to 130. So these guys are operating from about the middle of the first century to, in, to about the middle of the second century. And again, these are, these are people like Ignatius and Polycarp. They knew the Apostle John. Uh, and what makes them significant is that they overlap with the apostles. Now, I'll, I'll make a point here that I think is interesting. Um, a lot of times Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox make the point that their, their position is a more reliable position than the Protestant view because the early apostolic fathers who knew uh, the, the original apostles, they, they said, look, we know this on the authority of the bishops of the church. So you will, you'll see that a lot uh, in kind of what I would call inner, uh, inner uh, Christian apologetics or Chris, within Christendom, these, these particular debates. But, but think about the context of that. I mean, Papias tells us who the gospel writers were. Irenaeus does the same. Uh, Irenaeus even has a, a little discussion of the canon. Um, you know, the, these are people who tell us about the, the person of, 
of Christ, and they got it from the apostles. Some of the books that are very common, one of the oldest uh, Christian books outside the New Testament would be the Epistle of Clement. Uh, it's considered the oldest extant Christian document outside the New Testament. You have the Didache, you have the epistles of, of Ignatius, the epistles of Polycarp, the shepherd of Herms. So these are early uh, Christian writings that, again, take us uh, to, the, to the apostolic fathers. And then if I could say a bit more here, I'd like to begin to kind of introduce the church fathers, but I want to pause. Dave, Joe, question, comment about the apostolic fathers? Quick question. Are these individuals writing primarily in Latin or in Greek or in what? Great question. Most of the apostolic fathers are going to be in Greek. Um, Latin will come into play a little bit later, but uh, you're, you're going to have uh, Greek authors um, in now, fact, do we, later, do we have their, their writings or is a lot of it lost or? No, you can, uh, you can get this online. You can, you can read some of Clement's epistles. You can, you can get the Didache, uh, the, you can get the, uh, Shepherd of Herms. These are in some of the classic Christian library books, uh, but they're also available online. Public domain. Yeah. Well, let me then introduce a third period. So, you know, we have the apostolic era about 30 to 100. We have the apostolic fathers 50 to 150. Now we enter the, the well, era. Other little question. I know you might want to delay this until later, but I'm just kind of curious about what the people that are part of the Reformation, how do they view these apostolic fathers? I know that they later are uh, certainly quoting Augustine, who was a much later person. But what about these early uh, writings? Are they considered to be uh, uh, something that the ref the people, you know, the Protestants look at? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I think that the I, I think that most of the Reformation scholars uh, respect the apostolic fathers and the church fathers. Of course, they don't see them on the same level as scripture. Uh, they think there are times where the apostolic fathers and church fathers support uh, the strongest biblical teachings. Other times they're at odds with them. I think the reformers would say scripture has to serve as an authority even for the, the church fathers. Now, um, of course, there's a lot of common ground here. I mean, Tom Oden, who was a uh, very fine Methodist theologian, contemporary scholar, I believe we even interviewed Tom Oden at one time on one of our Reasons to Believe uh, radio programs or podcasts. Um, Oden, interesting man, started out very liberal. He studied under under Rudolf Bultmann and moved to Christian orthodoxy. So from the left to the right, which is not a common movement among, uh, unfortunately, among scholars, 
But Odin has a book in which he argues, he makes a case that all of the church fathers believed in justification by grace through faith. Now, of course, uh, the Protestant position would be justification by grace through faith alone. Right. Now, Odin, Odin doesn't use the word alone, but he does argue that all of the church fathers, uh, and he quotes them in his little book called The Justification Reader, available on Amazon, uh, he argues that the idea that we're justified by grace through faith was, was a consistent teaching. And then, of course, there are later thinkers who argued, Dave, that, that uh, you know, the debates about church tradition and scripture or the debates about justification and its relationship to grace, faith, and works— you know, there are scholars who say those debates did not begin at the time of the Reformation. They were going on in the Middle Ages. And some would even say that when the Catholic Church anathematized the Protestants, they were anathematizing part of their own church because some of their people believed those things. So, you know, uh, the Church Fathers, I think, are, are a very valuable uh, period, and I, I think sometimes they're neglected. Now, let me make just a couple more points, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more about the church fathers. Let me say this. There are people who almost totally ignore this. Um, you know, there are some people who say, look, uh, you need to interpret the Bible according to its biblical context, and uh, you know, they think that these Greek fathers, these Latin fathers, you know, they kind of take the church in a very different direction. I would, uh, I would take exception to that. I would say certainly we want to interpret scripture within its context. Uh, we want to draw out its meaning. We want to be good exegetes. But I, I think that to ignore this period uh, where people are interacting with these issues is, I think, to ignore a, a critical uh, area. And uh, I would take the position that we should interpret scripture in light of church history, not separate from church history. Uh, scripture is always the final authority, but I think we need to read it within its historical context. All right, well, let's talk a bit more uh, about the church fathers. Now, I'm going to give a dates here about 150 to 500, but as soon as I give that date, I'm going to tell you that if you move to the east, if you look at the eastern church fathers, their patristic era, as this is called, extends even further, maybe to 600, maybe to 800. So their, their patristic era is a bit longer than that of the Latin West. But let's talk about who these people are. They're theologians, they're apologists, they're church leaders, they're writers, and their, their ministry is to present, defend, and define historic Christianity. And, you know, they're relying upon um, the scriptures, they're relying upon the apostolic fathers, they're interacting with, with these kinds of of critical documents. And of course, the fathers, uh, we, we can define them as the Greek fathers who would be in the East. 
remember in the eastern part of the world, uh, they're Greek speakers. The, the western part of the world, they're Latin speakers. Hmm. Then, you, then you could have the desert fathers who would reflect more of a monastic uh, approach. I think of Antony. I think of Jerome, who were uh, leaders in, in the monastic movements. But let's talk a little bit about some of these individuals. Um, you know, uh, how about people like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen, and Tertullian? Those are those are very big names. They go, you know, they go very early. Justin Martyr, uh, he's called Justin Martyr because he died for his faith. He was martyred. Uh, his dates are 105 to 165. What do we know about Justin Martyr? He was a Christian philosopher. He was able to quote uh, the Stoics. He was able to quote Plato, and he argued that that, uh, you know, classical civilization kind of pointed toward the coming of the Messiah. So he is a person that says, look, the Greeks and the Romans got a lot of things right because of the Logos, uh, because God had revealed himself in, into the world. So he is a, he's probably the first Christian philosopher who could stand on the same ground as the Stoics and the Platonists and the Aristotelians and defend the faith. Uh, how about Irenaeus? I write about him in, in my book, Classic Christian Thinkers. Irenaeus is, I think, maybe the most important church father of the second century. Irenaeus's dates are 130 to 200. Why is he important? Well, he uh, single-handedly almost takes on Gnosticism. Uh, a very uh, destructive heresy uh, that said matter was evil and spirit was good and, and uh, you could only have knowledge through the gnosis. Well, I mean, if matter is evil, what does that do to creation? What does it do to the incarnation? What does it do to the crucifixion? What does it do to the resurrection? And you have the Gnostic gospels that come later by the way, Irenaeus also develops a theodicy, right? A, a theodicy is a Christian attempt to try to explain why God would allow evil. Uh, well, uh, Irenaeus talks about soul making. Irenaeus develops the idea that the reason why God allows suffering in life is it has a way of developing character into your being. And it may be the only way. I mean, um, I remember Walter Martin, who was kind of one of my church fathers, if you will, a contemporary uh, church father. Um, well, Walter Martin used to say some people won't look up until they're flat on their back. Um, how does God use suffering to tether you to him to develop character traits uh, within you? How about Origen? Now, Origen is, a con is maybe the most controversial uh, of the early church fathers. Um, by the way, he may have been the brightest. He may have been the most scholarly. Uh, Origen's dates are 185, and, and all of these are circa. All of these are about, you know, the, these go back very early, and setting particular dates is, is not easy in the ancient world. 
So his dates are about 185 to 254. Well, Origen was considered by many people. He came out of Alexandria. He was a, an apologist. Uh, he, he, uh, you know, he had a real mastery of Plato. Well, um, he was an amazing individual, but he got into some very controversial areas. Uh, some say he believed in pre-existence of souls, which would have been consistent with Plato, but not consistent with Christianity. I mean, God creates the soul rather than pre-existing uh, in a previous life. And Origen got into very serious trouble by advocating something like a universal salvation or universalism. So Origen is controversial, even though, even though he may be Augustine's greatest competitor in terms of intellect and, you know, insight. Uh, the heretics are, are often, it's seldom the, the heretics are dumb. The heretics are almost always brilliant, right? Well, that's Origen. Then you have Tertullian. Tertullian is unique. He was a Latin father. Uh, Tertullian's dates, uh, one, about 160 to 230. Tertullian, of course, was a great orator. He was very temperamental, kind of like an Old Testament prophet, if you will. He's known for his statement, there can never be, there will never be any agreement between Athens and Jerusalem. He didn't like that Christianity was mixing with philosophy. He wanted the biblical faith. Um, you know, we, uh, we owe a lot to Tertullian. By the way, he also came out of North Africa. So these are some of the very significant, uh, you know, early church fathers. Now, um, what's going to happen after that is I want to... Uh, I want to introduce more of the, uh, the doctors of the church, but I'm going to hold that to our second program. I, what I want to say in kind of bringing a lot of this information together is, again, um, what makes church history significant is that these people are living out the faith. Uh, you know, some of these people become bishops, some of these people become apologists, they're evangelists, they're interacting with the Greco-Roman culture. Uh, some of them suffer persecution, some even martyrdom. Um, and these are the early writers of the faith. They're, they're defending particular issues. And uh, in many ways, they're very heroic, not only because they, they face persecution, but they also confront heresies. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if we really appreciate a heresy like Arianism. I mean, have you ever, have you ever talked with a Jehovah's Witness? It's hard to make much ground with a Jehovah's Witness. I mean, they deny the truth. I, I call the Jehovah's Witnesses the Apostles' Creed deniers. I'm almost every line of the creed, they're, you know, they're questioning. Well, uh, imagine being in the early centuries of the church, somewhere between, you know, the first and fifth or sixth century, and you're confronting not only, uh, you know, you're not only uh, experiencing persecution, and you're trying to make Christianity seem like it's a reasonable faith, you know, it's not a cult, 
you know, it is, it is a, it is a faith where you can be a genuine member of the Roman Empire. You know, it's, it's, it's not trying to bring revolution, but you also face these heresies. And though I view scripture as having no peer, I view scripture as the supreme authority. And I, I like, I like the final court of appeals or the Supreme Court because there are many other authorities that church tradition is an authority. Human reason is an authority. The creeds, they are authoritative. But I would argue that all of those are derivative. Scripture's the supreme authority. But you know what? Protestants who don't take this period seriously I think they miss out on a lot of apologetic gems. They miss a lot of the very powerful things that uh, the early church fathers uh, give to us. And so um, I, I think, I often say to people, you know, I, I sometimes have students who will say, you know, Ken, um, if you were starting over, what would you do? Or you know, do you have any advice for me? I teach, for example, in the apologetics, uh, the, the master's degree in apologetics at Biola University. And, you know, I tell them, look, you can't know everything. Um, you know, you're, you have limits to your education. Maybe you have a background in science, or maybe you have a background in literature, or maybe it's in philosophy. But one thing you really do need to develop some skill and, and that is in terms of theology, not only, not only a good grasp of scripture, but a good grasp of historical theology and philosophical theology, you know, because you're not, you're not defending science, you're not defending philosophy, you're defending the historic Christian faith. And so uh, that's a little bird's eye view on the first, uh, 500 years of, of church history, you know, I, I'm, I'm always jealous of Dave and, and Hugh and Jeff, you know, they cover these cosmic periods, you know, hundreds of millions of years, billions of years, but, you know, with Hugh even likes to get into the, uh, in, you know, trillion upon trillion, you know, well, this is 500 years. Yeah. I, just a comment that uh, I think that for a person say like myself i'm not a scholar i'm a student that there are of course uh places where you can go and get i mean your some of your books for instance your classic christian thinkers book uh provides information for a person like me where i won't go to the original sources i've tried to do that in some cases i've looked at some of the writings of irenaeus and I just kind of, oh boy, uh, you know, and I tried to. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's not just, it's not just you, Dave. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote uh, Classic Christian Thinkers is I realized that it's kind of tough sledding. And what I, do, what I do in that book is I introduce nine Christian thinkers and I try to, I try to tell you a little bit about their works, about their life. And what I'm hoping is that'll be, you know, meaningful and purposeful. And maybe you'll take a dive and, you know, read some of that material. Um, 
Joe, it's probably a good time to talk a little bit about some sources. And I, I certainly want to recommend classic, my own book, Classic Christian Thinkers. A another author who has written deeply in this field is Yaroslav Pelikan. He has a five volume set on the, the Catholic tradition uh, that, that is, uh, I think, very, very good. And, and I have in Classic Christian Thinkers, each chapter that's devoted to a particular Christian thinker, I have references in that book as well. Yeah, so uh, just kind of a, a point for me, if I'm, if I'm hearing it uh, properly, Ken, you've covered, you say, 500 years or so, uh, but you marked out three eras, the Apostolic Era, the Apostolic Fathers, and then Church Fathers. Uh, yeah. So the, I guess the, uh, the point here is that there's been engagement from the very get-go uh, with other ideas, and these people were defending the Christian faith. You mentioned a lot of them were writers, philosophers, theologians. They were thinkers. So this has been passed down to us, and we benefit when we learn from them. That's something that you emphasize over and over to not neglect our past. That's exactly right. Um, Joe, the, they, the early church, I think particularly the Eastern church, um, you know, I think they've suffered more persecution than people in the West. And I, you know, who knows what will happen in the future? Uh, you know, some, some people hold an eschatological view that says there will be great persecution in the future. I think we can learn from these people, their courage, their strength of the past. Um, I, I think that they went through a lot of things that we can learn from. And, um, you know, there was a, uh, a particular scholar, uh, John Henry Newman. He was initially an Anglican. Then later in life, he converted to Catholicism. And one of his criticisms of the Protestant tradition is he said, uh, to be a Protestant, you can't go deep into history. And I remember reading that and I, I, it, it challenged me. Um, it challenged me as a Protestant. And I, uh, I disagree with Newman. I respect him, but I disagree with him. I, I think it's very important, Joe, for even maybe especially evangelicals, maybe especially evangelicals living today to, to take on a, a greater awareness of church history. Um, I don't think church history belongs exclusively to the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. I think it belongs to all of us. And I think it goes deeper than merely the Protestant Reformation, though that was a very rich, deep period, as we'll see maybe a little bit later as, and when we return to this. But yeah, we've looked at We've looked at the we've looked at Jesus, the Apostolic era, the Apostolic Fathers, and then the early Church Fathers. What we'll go to next is I want to talk specifically about the Doctors of the Church. Uh, they are a unique set. You might think of them as kind of the Hall of Fame mm. of the Church Fathers, if you will, and mm -hmm. and that will be the topic we'll address next time. Great, looking forward to that. In the meantime, you mentioned. Uh, 
your books. Uh, people have been reading them, Ken. Uh, some of the comments that have come in are, are worth repeating here because uh, they're real quick. Let me read several of them. Ken samples, writes, and speaks with exacting clarity. Kathleen Lyon. Here's another one. A world of difference is true, fair, clear, and methodical. Jeff Franzwa. Uh, here's another one. A world of difference is a great book. Keep them coming, please. That's from Dennis Tiemier, if I got that right. And one more. Ken, you have too many good books to read. Brony Adelaide via Twitter. Any comment to that, Ken? Well, I <laughs> stop <you know>, writing. <laughs> I I am encouraged by those comments. You know, sometimes you, Joe, you know, as a, a longtime editor, that book projects are kind of intimidating. It it takes a lot of time, a lot of detail, and a lot of work. And certainly encouraging to me when when people say it's been helpful to them. It make, makes all that work, um, you know, worth it. Yeah. Well, thank you for writing in, each of you, and uh, we hope to hear from more of you. You can reach Ken the usual way is via his Twitter handle, at RTB underscore K samples. But uh, some of you are finding Ken on Facebook and commenting there, or reading reflections by Ken.wordpress.com and commenting on Ken's uh, biweekly blog post. So thank you for those comments. Uh, keep them coming. Uh, this podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. And you can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast there and get one delivered to you each week. So thank you for listening. Uh, be sure to share the link and don't miss uh, next week as well as we continue this discussion. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogsad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of straight thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.